Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, the account of the presentation of our Lord Jesus to the temple, in the second chapter of St. Luke, verse 29 and 30, Lord, lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. It's deja vu all over again. The immortal line of the great Yogi Berra is described by the British-American columnist and television personality Alistair Cook as, quote, the baseball catcher who long after his retirement acquired a reputation for salty sayings of an original sort, plain dumb-sounding sayings, but memorable. It's deja vu all over again, so dumb-sounding that it is indeed memorable, that it is repeatable. Or try this one, also attributed to Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And that's the message for us on this Sunday after Christmas, it ain't over until it's over, so don't go putting away all of the decorations quite yet. The Christmas Eve candles may be extinguished. The gifts under the tree, undoubtedly by this time all open. The Christmas Day dinner table surely cleared, but don't take down the tree or at least leave something to remind you that this is still Christmas that's being celebrated. You're tired of Burl Ives, have a holly jolly Christmas, or Gene Autry's I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, or Elvis Presley's Blue Christmas, had nearly enough of even some of the wonderful hymns and the carols of Christmas that we've been singing in these past days, it's understandable. But don't let that Christmas spirit slip away from your heart quite yet. For those to whom Christmas is nothing more than gifts under the tree, it is indeed all over. But for those of us to whom Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of God becoming flesh, it's not at all all over. God becoming flesh to dwell among us and to save us. For us, the celebration goes on. For us, Christmas isn't over until it's over, and it's not over yet. It only began on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and we, with the church throughout the ages, have at least another ten days of Christmas tide. Some call it Yuletide to celebrate. You've heard the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. It well represents the Christmas season, and I'm not talking about the time from Halloween when the witches and the goblins are taken off the store shelves and make place suddenly and abruptly for Santa Claus and for all other sorts of Christmas things, skipping even over Thanksgiving. I'm not talking about that kind of Christmas because that to the church is Advent. It's not really Christmas yet, but the world knows nothing about Advent. It knows nothing about what we call that important time of penitential preparation. The world knows no penitential preparation. The world knows no advent, and so it goes immediately to Christmas. Christmas tied for the church is Christmas Eve to Epiphany, celebrating the arrival of the Magi on January 6th, 12 days, and we're only at day three. It's not over yet, but it soon will be, won't it? A week from today, 
and the celebrating of Christmas tide, even for the church, will be settling down. And then comes what we might refer to as re-entry time, the time for us to get back to life as usual as we enter into this new year of God's grace that's coming. Then comes that re-entry time, time to tackle anew all of the tasks and all of the troubles that we try so hard to put on hold so that we can celebrate this Christmas tide, putting them on hold knowing that we'll have to eventually face the problems of life and the problems that need resolving, contending with, confronting. And wouldn't you rather not have to do that? Wouldn't you rather get rid of all the problems that you have and that you have to come face to face with in the days to come, just pitch them into the recycle bin like you have all the Christmas wrappings that you took off your presents in the last few days? Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Toss them in the garbage can as you do the other trash in your life. Scrape them into the disposer and then just hit that switch on the wall and suddenly zoom. It's all gone. You don't have those troubles to contend with anymore, those problems that are there, whether it's sins, sicknesses, and diseases, which are determined to begin the year with us and threaten to ruin it, or our own sinful disposition, and it's going to be there, our own sinful behavior throughout this coming year, which is more likely to do the same thing, to ruin the year before us, the sinful choices of others with whom we live, let's face it. We'd rather not have to live with and deal with the everyday consequences of sin in our lives and sin in the sinful world in which we live. Sin so messes things up for us. Our sin makes us and it makes so many others so miserable as we reflect upon its impact and its effect on our everyday lives, whether it's your sin or my sin or someone else's sin, wouldn't you rather live without it? Well, dear fellow sinners, on this side of heaven, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in 2010 any more than it happened in 2009 or any previous year. You, we all, are destined to live out our days on earth in man's mess of sin and what he's made out of it. In fact, it's sinful for us to expect or to seek some imaginary place on earth where sin has no effect. It's a sinful waste of time and a sinful denial of reality, a reality which brings us face to face with our sin as we live in this world and our days out here so that we also then will see our need for the Savior who has come. Even consider Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus. As miraculous and memorable as the events of that one night must have been for them when the shepherds came, for example, to them in Bethlehem's grotto, yet they had to move on from that miraculous night into the sinful world into which each of them was born. They had to move on from the warm and the gentle welcome of adoring shepherds who undoubtedly told them of the magnificent angelic choir that sang from heaven's heights, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. As momentous and miraculous as it all had been for Joseph and Mary, and they were at the epicenter of this earth-shaking event of God becoming man, they still had to go back to a world that was sin-infected and sin-affected, a world which, of which they were very much a part. And so now the angels are gone, 
And now the shepherds are gone, and the wise men, as we call them, or the magi, bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, they're still in transit, perhaps hundreds of miles off, a good distance to go before they'd arrive and they'd find Mary and Joseph no longer in the grotto cave, but now St. Matthew tells us in the house. Going about life is normal now, undisturbed for a short time, but don't be fooled. It's only a divinely scheduled downtime. It's a time of 40 days after our Lord's birth. But before the Magi came, ushering in unknowingly Herod's slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, but now it's a downtime, now the prescribed time for the newborn infant, the virgin's firstborn son, to be presented at the temple only 40 days after his birth. And so it was that Joseph and Mary and her firstborn son, circumcised weeks earlier, make that short six-mile trek from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Unbeknownst to any but God and perhaps Joseph and Mary, if they were even thinking about it, it's time for the temple's Lord to now go on to the temple itself. The temple's Lord going to the temple for the first time in his newly assumed flesh, his body, which in due time will be that sacrifice that brings to an end the need of any sacrifice to be made in the temple. And so St. Matthew would write in his gospel, something greater than even the temple is here. Make no mistake about it, Jesus had been born into this world to shed his blood for us, to take the place of all of the sacrifices that had ever been made in the temple because he was the completion of all of those sacrifices. They merely pointed to the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world to keep the law perfectly for us, beginning with the shedding of his blood, even on the eighth day among us in his circumcision, continuing with his presentation in the temple on his 40th day among us, Jesus born to save his people from their sins and already the infant Jesus already is at work among sinners and for us sinners as an infant in the temple outside of which 33 years later Jesus would complete his redeeming work of reconciling a whole world unto himself by assuming unto his sinless body the sins of you and me and all of mankind and all of history and bearing the cross for all of the world. The temple which now on the 40th day after its Lord's incarnation greets the Lord through the words of an old prophet. An old prophet who was there in the temple, Simeon is his name, derived from the Hebrew word Shimon, which finds its roots in the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear. Simeon, God hears. And God had indeed heard. For how many centuries had God heard the prayers of his people? Prayers ascending first from the tabernacle and then from the temple. Prayers anticipating and begging God to send his son, to send his long-awaited Messiah. Prayers spoken by common men like Joseph and maidens like Mary and old priests like Zechariah and old prophets like Simeon. Simeon, whose prayers God heard, and to whom the Holy Spirit had come, in whatever way the Holy Spirit would come to his prophets of old. 
And he promised Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen with his own eyes death's destroyer. Until he had seen with his very own eyes the Christ of God, the Messiah promised of old, the one of whom Isaiah the prophet's prophet has spoken when he reports that God spoke to his Messiah the Son, saying, I will also make you the light of the nations and my salvation even unto the ends of all of the earth. The Spirit of God spoke to Simeon and promised him that he would not see death until he had first seen death's destroyer, and now the hour had come. Now the hour had arrived, and Joseph enters the temple, and Mary, who bears in her arms God's only begotten, informed by the Holy Spirit, Spirit Simeon, knows right away what only faith sees in the Son of God, and he takes the child from Mary, and he lifts the child up in his arms, and then, as I mentioned on Christmas Eve, as the child then embraces him, the old sinner, the old Simeon, the prophet says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Spirit-inspired words spoken by every generation of believers every Sunday since, as they, like Simeon of old, receive the Christ into their hands and lift him to their lips, not merely to kiss him and to bless him, as did Simeon of old, but to receive his very body and his very blood, and there in that holy supper to be embraced by him even as we so often are. What happened to Simeon happens even unto each of us. Is it any wonder then that we would sing Simeon's song, Lord, lettest thou thy servant now depart in peace? According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And remember, it's not the last thing that old Simeon said either. Looking at the Virgin Mother of our Lord, the prophet of God was required by the Spirit of God to speak of how that Son of God would be the salvation of the world. It simply didn't announce that he was, but it also told us how he would be the salvation of the world. Indeed, old Simeon said, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and he will be a sign that will be opposed and a sword, Mary, will pierce your own soul, and the thoughts of many hearts will then be revealed. A sign spoken against, Simeon said. The one from heaven that marks the end of any notion of neutrality about God. Each man is either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. And thus his coming means heaven for many, indeed, by God's grace for all of us. But because man is by nature opposed to this Christ, it sadly means hell for many more. Sinners opposed to the very Son of God, which God the Father sends to save them. Sinners opposed to the very word and the very work of the Holy Spirit of God, 
who would enable them to say with Simeon and with all of us, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Sinners who would three decades later betray him and deny him and decry him, saying crucify him, crucify him, and fulfill Simeon's sad words to Mary as she stands below the cross and beholds her son and her Lord and undoubtedly weeps, fulfilling the prophecy of old Simeon, Mary, a sword also will pierce thine own heart. A sword of sorrow pierced not only the soul of the mother of our Lord, but sorrow like a sword would pierce also the father of our Lord, and I'm not here speaking of Joseph. Our salvation cost God, cost God the Father dearly. Our salvation cost him his only begotten Son. But isn't that the greatest gift of Christmas, that God, as St. Paul says, spared not his Son, but delivered him up for us all? Some time ago, a seminary professor was studying ancient Greek tragedies as he traveled across the country by train, and he came across the story of a Greek god who fell in love with an earthly maiden, and so he descended to earth to visit her, and when the visiting god found her, something had happened. She'd been in some sort of an accident, and so she lay in a pool of blood because of this accident that she had suffered, and the god was so repulsed by the sight of it at all and by the sight of blood that immediately he winged his way, so the Greek tragedy says, back to Mount Olympus where he could contemplate human suffering from a safe distance. Here was a God unwilling to encounter human pain and suffering and death in a painfully personal way. A God who insulated himself indeed from human suffering. But not so our God. He's not a God who feared the human suffering, which always comes as a consequence of human sin in a fallen sinful world. Ours is not a God who is afraid of blood or the shedding of it. A God who would insulate himself from it? Not at all. In fact, our God became flesh in order that he might shed his blood so that he could, as St. Paul says, purchase the church of God with his own blood. That's what lay in store for our Lord on the other side of Christmas so long ago. A divine destiny which would secure your salvation and my salvation for all of eternity through a suffering and through a death which is as real as our sin. A death that would deliver us all from all human suffering ultimately and then ultimately from death itself and from the grave itself. You see, it's not nearly over even when Christmas is over. There's so much more of the world's greatest story yet to tell. So much more that in the history of our salvation, Christ has yet to do, to secure for us an eternal tomorrow, which in Christ, for us and for all who believe in him, is indeed only begotten. A blessed Christmas tide in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.